pretty much preached my sermon. If we leave now, we can beat the Baptists to lunch. <laughs> Came across a story while I was preparing this week's message. Comes to us from Haddon Robinson, who is a professor of homiletics and preaching at Gordon-Conwell Seminary near Boston. Take a listen. <clears throat> Dorothy Sayers, the mystery writer, was also a devoted Christian. Dorothy Sayers was attempting to explain the moral law of God. She pointed out that in our society, there are two kinds of laws. There's the law of the stop sign, and then there's the law of fire. The law of the stop sign is a law that says traffic is heavy on a certain street, and as a result, the police department or the city council decides to erect the stop sign. I've had that happen to me a few times. They also decide that if you run the stop sign, it will cost you 25 or 30 or $35. I've never had it cost me that least. It's always been at least a couple hundred dollars. Just saying. If the traffic changes, they can up the ante. That is, if too many people are running the stop sign, they can make the fine 50 or 75 or two or 300 or build a highway around the city. They can take the stop sign down or reduce the penalty or make it only $10 if you go through. The police department or the city council controls the law of the stop sign. Does that make sense? We good? But then she said there's also the law of the fire. And the law of the fire says that if you put your hand in the fire, you will get burned. Now, Imagine that all of the legislatures of all of the nations of the entire world gathered in one great assembly and they voted unanimously, unanimously, that from here on out, fire would no longer burn. The first man or woman who left that assembly and put his or her hand in the fire would discover that the law of the fire is different than the law of the stop sign. Bound up in nature, in the the nature of fire itself, is the penalty for abusing it. So, Dorothy Sayers says, the moral law of God is like the law of the fire. You never break God's laws, you just break yourself on them. God can't reduce the penalty, because the penalty for breaking the law is bound up in the law itself. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Kevin O'Connor. I'm the founder and pastor and teacher of Legacy Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And I'm honored to be here at, at Wendover. This is my second favorite congregation in all the world. <laughs> For the last several weeks, you guys have been working your way through the story, which is a unique way to look at the Bible as a narrative. Today we find ourselves looking at the book of Judges with a message titled, A Few Good Men and Women. There we go. There's always one. There's always one. She's hanging out with me next week, by the way. The illustration that I just shared with you is particularly poignant, given the nature of what we're going to be talking about today. There's a verse that occurs twice in the book of Judges, once in chapter 17 and once in verse 21, and it kind of gives us a glimpse of the mindset, or maybe we should say the heart set, so to speak, of the people of Israel during this time in their history. You'll find it on the top of your message outlines, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Check this out. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. This comes to us from the English Standard Version of the Bible. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Let me set the stage for us here. Early on in the book of Judges, in the first couple of chapters, we see Joshua is still with us, but he's very, very old. And he's getting ready to die. And one of the commands that was given to Joshua, gosh, it goes all the way back into, into, the, into the Pentateuch, into the, into the five books of the law. What we see is God had a command. He had commanded Moses and he had commanded Joshua after him that when they went into the promised land, they were to utterly destroy the inhabitants of, the, of that land, of Canaan. What that means is that it means exactly what it says. You go in, you kill everything. I mean everything. You kill the men, the women, the children. You don't spare any of the livestock. You kill everything. If Metallica were alive, they would have said, they would have said it through God, kill them all and let me sort it out. That's basically what he was saying. I will take care of this. You go in and you listen to me and you kill. Now, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. That sounds incredibly cruel. It's like, geez, oh man, I can't believe the God, the God, the same God, gracious God, is, is that kind of, excuse me. There's actually a lid on that, so we're good. Just saying. I'm not rebellious or anything. God was very serious about this. And there's a reason for that. And it's bound up in human nature. Gosh, you can see it today. God's greatest concern was that the children of Israel would go into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, into the land of all the ites, okay? And he would, what would happen was that all of a sudden, because they were a smaller nation than the rest of these guys put together, what would happen was instead of the nation of Israel having influence over the people that were living in the land, which is what God was looking to do. He was looking to establish a people through which he could redeem humanity. You follow? What his concern was, if they went in and they had some of these people that were still there, now mind you, the people that were living in that land were multi-theists. They were polytheists. That the idea of one God to them was utterly foreign. Made no sense to them whatsoever. What do you mean you only worship one God? So that the, 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 what, what the Jews were doing was completely out of, out of sync with what the people of the land were doing. So, God's concern was that the nation of Israel would go in, and instead of them exerting influence on the people of the land, the people of the land would instead exert influence on them. And what would happen was that instead of, of following, as Jesus said in the great commandment, the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, what would happen was they would turn away from Yahweh and they would follow after the gods of the land that were there. And they would marry into the families and the people that were there. There used to be a TV show. I don't know if it's still on or not. There used to be a TV show on one of the home improvement channels that dealt with people who started a project and never got around to finishing it. What would happen was they'd make, just make an utter mess of the place, you know? So then they would have an expert go in. This is what the TV show's all about. 
they would have an expert go and take a look at it to see what had to be done in order to finish the job. Usually what happened was the expert went in, looked at it, and said the thing was hopeless and would end up gutting and destroying the whole thing and starting all over again so as to do the thing right. Let that sit in the back of your minds for a while as we go through this next little time period. The book of Judges has, I think, some of the most interesting stories in the entire Bible. Some of the strangest as well. As you begin to read through it, you begin to see a pattern develop. It's a recurring pattern throughout Judges. And you also see it, and I'll give you a heads up here. I won't give, I won't give it away for Pastor Tom too much. But you also see this pattern come up when you look at the minor prophets. Let's take a look at them. There's four themes that recur practically every time. Get ready. If you're taking notes, write this down. The first one is rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion is nothing new from a biblical perspective. It started in Genesis 3 and is present all the way through the latter portion of the book of Revelation. But specifically with respect to the nation of Israel, rebellion has been a part of their makeup. And we see it right after they left Egypt, don't we? It's the reason why they languished in the desert for 40 years. It's the reason that at various times during their sojourn, many of them had to be killed off en masse. It's the reason Moses couldn't enter the promised land. God takes rebellion very seriously. In fact, as we have seen up to this point, he has absolutely zero tolerance for it. In the first chapter in Judges, Israel begins to conquer the land of Canaan. And as long as they follow God's explicit directions, things go just as God had told them it would go, which is to say they met with great success. However, as they begin to back off, as they begin to shortcut the process, as they begin to make treaties with the inhabitants of the land, as opposed to utterly destroying, as per, utterly destroying them as per God's instructions, things began to go in a different direction. Just as God said they would. You see, God had instructed the people to utterly destroy everything they came across because he knew if there was any remnant, any little bit of a reminder of who was there, the Israelites would get distracted and would eventually fall under the influence of the prevailing culture. Question for you, rhetorical question. Does this pattern sound even vaguely familiar some 3,000 plus years later? Here's where it began. Judges chapter 3 and verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. In other words, they bought in Lock, stock, and barrel to the prevailing culture, just as God said they would. The culture that they were called to destroy and rebuild under the influence of Yahweh, they couldn't do it because 
They came under the influence of that culture as opposed to taking the influence that God had given them into the culture that they were a part of. As we said earlier, God will not tolerate rebellion, which leads to the next recurring theme. Write this down. Judgment. God God takes rebellion personally. We saw that in various places in the previous four books when he opened up the earth to swallow up people who were causing trouble. Here, however, we see a different form of judgment in that God doesn't directly intervene. In fact, the exact opposite. He, in fact, takes his hand of blessing off the nation and allows the people of the land to basically overrun and conquer them. God's judgment takes the form of turning his back on them and allowing them to face the consequences of their actions. Case in point, the Canaanites in in Judges 4. Take a listen. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Hagoyim. He had sold them into their hands by not intervening on their behalf. God judged them by allowing the people whom he had promised they would conquer if they had followed his instructions to more or less have their way with him. Now needless to say, this did not go over big with the Israelites, which leads to our next theme in our recurring pattern. Write this down. Repentance. Jump ahead to Judges 10. The nation had pretty much been yo-yoing through this pattern for a long time. And you'll get a sense of that in, from both parties. And you can tell by what I'm about to read that they're a little bit weary of it. Judges chapter 10, verse 15, verses 15 and 16. Check this out. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us what seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. That's an important part of repentance. The other day, we did, we did Ash Wednesday. We're, we're doing a whole big Lent thing at Legacy. And we did Ash Wednesday. It was funny, I was talking to your pastor about it last week. And I said, you know, he asked me, he said, so man, are you done with, you done with your sermon for you guys here? He said, are you done with your sermon? I said, man, I'm, I'm writing, writing a sermon for Ash Wednesday. He said, Ash Wednesday. He said, man, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty traditional for a contemporary church. Let me saying that jokingly. I said, dude, it is so traditional that it's contemporary. <laughs> but what we talked about, the theme of Lent is about reflection. It's about repentance. And I wrote a message titled Real Repentance. And what real repentance is about, so many people think that what repentance is about, it's like you throw your arms up in the air and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did this to you for heaven's sakes. Please forgive me. They think that's what repentance is. That's kind of what the children of Israel are saying here. Lord, we're sorry. Do to me whatever you see fit, but get me out of here. Get me out of this situation that I found myself in. The thing is this, that's only half of the deal. It is one thing to walk 
I mean, to say, you know what, Lord, deliver me. Take me away from this. Take me out of this. I'm sorry. There's a second half to it, and we see it here. Check this out. I think it's in in verse 16. It says, so they put away their foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. Repentance, real repentance, total repentance, is not just about turning.